Greetings, everyone. I am Lynn Gilliland. This is Lessons from Leaders, a podcast of my company, Lynn Gilliland Consulting, and sponsored by Humentum. And today we have Nancy Waxstein on. I'm so excited about us getting to listen to her or you getting to listen to her. She talks about leading now, leading the crises in crises. And Nancy has a long career in leading nonprofits in New York settlement houses with the um, local government, and now she's in academia. So she really brings a deep perspective. She talks about the need to be transparent. She talks about the need to, um, when you need to move on to moving on and not waiting too long and being erring on the side of being nice rather than being assertive. She has some great advice for up and coming leaders about having humility and what seemed more uh, vital to me is also saying, giving a formula or tips on how to develop allies that will help you through your career. I think it's a great episode, especially for leading now during crises, really getting to sit down at the seat at the feet of someone who has a long history in leadership and leading successfully. Um, and so I'm so excited for you to get to listen to Nancy. So let's go to the episode. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back. Lynn Gilliland here, Lessons from Leaders. We're here with Nancy Waxstein, and she has such a wonderful, rich background in working in the nonprofit and other sectors. And right now she's in the uh, education sector that I wanted her to come and talk about her the things she knows about leadership, what she sees as great leadership. Um, and we're going to touch on leading now, which we have so many crises going on. We'll, we definitely want to hear what Nancy, um, your wisdom. So Nancy, thank you so much for coming. Delighted to be here. Great. And so Nancy, just catch us up. I don't know if that's the right word, maybe not <laughs> catch us up, but um, just give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of your, of your bio, how you got to where you are, and tell us where you are. Okay. Um, well, I, I have been based in New York City for all of my career, um, and I have worked for nonprofit advocacy groups, and then I worked in New York City government. I worked um, for a man named David Dinkins, who ultimately became the first and now and still only black mayor of New York um, in 1989, he was elected and I worked for him for several years as um, on the issue of homelessness and other human services issues. And from there, I um, uh, ran a nonprofit organization in Manhattan called Lenox Hill Neighborhood House, which was a settlement house, which is a multi-service community-based organization. Uh, Lenox Hill happened to have a very long and glorious history. The organization was over 100 years old, and it uh, you know, did a variety of social service and educational and recreational activities. Um, for people who are not familiar with settlement houses, it was it's kind of like a community center. Um, and then uh, from after uh, 11 years as the executive director, which in the nonprofit world is typically what we call CEOs, is executive director, after 11 years there, I became the executive director of the 
federation of all the settlement houses, around 40 settlement houses and community centers in New York, um, which actually was leading uh, an organization with fewer staff, but was but had a very, um, I think, large footprint in the advocacy world in in New York. Um, and you know, New York is a big stage, and there's a lot of politics that are flowing all around you. So it was, you know, being the leader of that organization and representing so many different nonprofits was. Uh, was quite a challenge of leadership, I have to say. Um, and I can talk more about that in a minute. And then um, uh, about five years ago, um, if I can just throw in a, a personal, uh, the personal aspect of this, my mom at the time uh, had become quite ill. And as the only daughter on the East Coast, which is where she lived, uh, I took on primary responsibility for making sure that she was safe and as healthy as she could be um, well into her 90s. But at that point, uh, I decided to leave what was a very demanding 24-7 job to, um, to do something that would allow me to do, in a sense, both jobs. As I, I said to my staff, uh, at the time, I said, I can't be the executive director of this organization and of my mother at the same time. I, I, it was hard. Um, and um, so I, I uh, found a really interesting job. I, I was trained as a social worker. Um, I went to Columbia School of Social Work, got my master's there many years ago. And so um, one of the graduate schools of social service, social work in, in New York at Fordham University um, asked me to join them as uh, the director of community engagement, uh, which is where I've been for the last five years. I work, uh, I don't work full time. Uh, at this point, I'm trying to work three days a week. Uh, I started when I started there I was working four days a week, but it gave me enough of a relief uh, on my time and responsibilities to be able to, um, you know, do all my jobs. And um, so, uh, so it's been interesting. So I've been in um, nonprofit, in government, and now in academia. Um, so all of those give you a, a bird's eye view of leadership, that's for sure. <laughs> it's perfect. That's why we wanted to talk to you. And you mentioned... Um, just, just in your history about uh, challenges in your in the last position, not the one that you have now. Some of the leadership challenges. What what were those? Oh well, as I said, you know, in in New York City, the the politics are fierce. They're big, um, and when you're trying to move an issue as an advocacy organization, um, it it's hard. Um, I learned a lot about. Um, coalition building, which I think to me has emerged as one of the key aspects of a good leader, somebody who can find and cultivate allies and work well with, uh, you know, allies and allied organizations. And so for me, that was, I guess, a hallmark of, of how I did the job was trying to bring others along. And, and also that organization, it was called United Neighborhood Houses, was a membership organization. So I had 40 different um, leaders 
as part of my federation. And as anybody knows, you know, people can be uh, headstrong and people can be opinionated and people can want to go their own way. So I used to say it was really like herding cats in a way. And it was really a challenge in that regard to, to be a spokesperson and to amplify uh, their issues while at the same time making them feel valued and important and part of the group. And so it's, uh, you know, as I say to the students now at Fordham, social work skills actually come in handy in, in leadership positions because it's about building relationships of trust. It's about active listening. These are all things that, you know, you're taught in social work school. Um, you know, really listening to, to what people care about and what they need. Um, and, you, you know, you can't have an alliance unless everybody gets something from it. So being really tuned in to what people need and want, I think is a pretty important aspect, at least in leading a, uh, an association um, and probably leading any organization. And, you know, I, I think that those skills are a little bit underrated when, you know, when we talk about, you know, I used to say all the time, you know, if you go into a bookstore, there are shelves upon shelves in the business section of how to be a leader or how, and very, not that many of them focus on building relationships. And I think that's a really important piece of leadership. Uh, and it, it worked for me. Uh, I can tell you it worked for me uh, for the most part. <laughs> well, a couple of things there. One, you know, nothing's ever 100% successful. So sometimes you failed that because, you know, you're human and People are building relationships. It's every every person is new. I mean, there's some things that are the same, but you always have to gauge what this person needs, right? Um, and I I so appreciate you talking about building relationships because I'm I think there are business books about that, and I don't think that's where people gravitate about leadership. That's not where they gravitate. So. I mean, and, and let me just say, yes, it can be transactional too, you yeah. know, but, but if you, if there's not a mutual respect or mutual trust even more, I think it's hard to even move forward on a transactional basis. Right. Uh, I think they're, I don't know they're, if they're balanced like on the scale, but they're definitely interwoven to be successful in one, you, you need the other. Yeah, yeah. But I can say when, you know, in terms of mistakes, probably where I've erred on in when I was leading organizations was, in a sense, you know, giving people too many chances. I always think that I wasn't like hard enough in terms of, in terms of staff and staff performance, you know, it was, I was always willing to hear that person's side of the story, which in many cases, is a very good quality, but maybe I let it go too long as I, as I look back on it, you know, because I, you know, I want people to succeed. I mean, I think that's what a good leader does. You, you enable success in, in the people who work for you. And, um, you know, maybe I sometimes let it go too long. <laughs> what, what makes you think you might've let it go too long? Oh, I don't know. You know, you, you hear, you know, very often in organizations, you will, uh, staff members will come to you and say, 
this isn't working and this person is doing this or that. And then, you know, giving the person the benefit of the doubt and, you know, bringing them into your office, finding out what's going on and giving them another chance. And I think I, you know, I think I did that. Um, I had a, um, in one of my jobs, I had a very brilliant financial guy who clearly had some mental health problems and, you know, and I didn't act soon enough to, to confront him on the fact that he wasn't, was no longer able to do the job, not on the fact that he was having mental illness or addiction problems, but that he could no longer perform the job, which was the realm that I was concerned about. And, you know, I just, you know, it was the human being in me because, interestingly enough, because when I got to that organization, I didn't know that much about financial management and he taught me so much. So I was grateful to him so right. that I couldn't see, uh, right, like I didn't want to see uh, what was happening to this, you know, warm, brilliant guy who was crumbling before my eyes, you know. And I want to pause, just stay on this for just a second, because this topic keeps coming up again and again in my conversations. Um, I just had a CEO roundtable recently, and we, that was the topic. And we were talking about, you know, just, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off. Or someone had the metaphor, which invoice are you going to pay? The, you know, which one do you pay now? Because... And so there's a cost to letting that the person that needs to be let go, not letting them, letting yeah. them go. So which, you know, which of the ones do you just bite the bullet? And one of the things they, this, the round table we're talking about was uh, every person there said they felt better once they decided it was the deciding that they took struggled to do and get to it. But once they decided there's a sense of, okay, this is the right thing. Right. You know, it's like breaking up a bad relationship, right? <laughs> you know, it's hard to do, but, but yeah. then, you know, if you feel relief afterwards, then you sort of know you did the right thing. But um, you know what? I, uh, I think also as women, and I don't know if you've seen this in your practice, you know, it's being quote unquote confrontational or being assertive about that sort of thing, you know, is not how most of us, at least of my generation, were brought up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it, it's a, even, I'm sure it's hard for everybody, but I think even for women, it's maybe even harder. Um, because we're supposed to be nice, remember? That's what I was thinking. It's the nice factor that is, gets in our way of moving quickly when things need to be taken care of because then we're not going to be nice, nice and drilled into us. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I don't know whether, you know, whether it's, that's going to disappear with the next, the generations that come after us. I hope so a bit. <laughs> Let's shift to um, what do you wish leaders were doing right now with all in the crises that. in Yeah. Huh. Well, first of all, first of all, it's hugely stressful time, needless to say. I mean, I, I'm obviously most familiar with the nonprofit world and I'm most familiar with the nonprofit human services world. You know, people, agencies, 
on the front lines of helping people during the pandemic with things like food pantries and legal assistance and eviction prevention and, you know, homelessness prevention and things like that. Um, you know, very stressful work in the best of times. And now, of course, um, even more so. And um, I think, oh, I, I think there's a couple of things. You're not going to, nobody's going to fix the pandemic and nobody's going to wave a magic wand and say that funding is going to be adequate for these services and these vulnerable people. That's not going to happen. So what can you do? You can try to, um, you can be, of course, honest and forthright about what the situation is. Um, I have found over the years, there's no sense hiding. If, you're, if your organization is facing budgetary difficulties, for example, and you know staff layoffs or furloughs might be in the future, there's no sense in like um, sugarcoating that. I think people do want to know. Yes, it might in the short term make them more anxious, but in the long term, it might make them feel better about the place they work for and the leader of that organization if they know that they're being truthful, mm -hmm. forthright, and it might be reassuring that they're forecasting, that their leadership is forecasting into the future so that it's not like uh, a crisis management. So if you come, if you have a staff meeting and say to your people, well, we believe that, you know, in January, we're going to have to do this. So we're going to have to cut back, you know, 10% or everybody's going to have to take a 15% pay cut. I think people want to know that and they want to know it sooner rather than later. So I think being uh, anticipating scenarios, I think is leadership. I think being forthright about it. I never believed in hiding um, what was really going on. Uh, it just blows up in your face, I think, if you if you keep things secret and you hide. And people, you know, what I found out, is staff, they know it, they know every everything anyhow, you know. <laughs> so so I, I think being forthright, honest, of course, is 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 important. But I also think understanding, at least for for my work with a lot of frontline workers, what we would now call essential workers, right? Um, showing, recognizing them, showing them that you see them and that you appreciate them and you recognize what they have done for the organization. You know, when you're the head of an organization, a lot of the glory, if you will, the kudos come to you. Not, uh, not true, actually. The people on the front lines doing some of this work are far more heroic than you'll ever be. So I think acknowledging that um, it makes people feel good. And, and everybody says, oh, well, you know, people only care about getting a raise. Not true. Not true. People care about being seen and appreciated. They really do. That, that's one of the things that I always thought was surprising. Um, and um, it works. It works. You know, we, it, organizations, are, we started like internal employee newsletters so we could highlight the accomplishments of various staff so we could broadcast it out to the whole group. You know, that mattered to people. It's nice to have, you know, in a workplace when we're all back in our physical workplaces again, it's nice to have somebody come up to you in the hallway and say, wow, that's really great what you did. You know, yeah, yeah. Could they, would they like another $10,000 in their paycheck? Yeah. But if you can't do that, 
it's nice to be able to have some mechanisms by which you can. So I, I saw myself as a leader of the staff. I mean, it was certainly not my only job, but that's, you know, I, I, I used to say all the time, you know, if the executive director, you know, asks the maintenance guy, how's your new baby? That matters. That's huge. <laughs> so, and you know, it, it, again, and you know, I, I don't know how much the nonprofit world differs from the corporate world in that in that regard, but I bet that it still matters if somebody sees you. And we have research to sh to back that up. So most people leave their jobs because their boss, their team, they're not valued, not because of salary and benefits. Oh, that's really interesting. Because they are, they feel that they what they bring is not valued. And you know, and you know, Lynn, for me, I didn't just say that's HR's job. I didn't just say that's the the job of the human resources department. I said it's also my job as the leader. So that, that's yeah. And then there, so the other thing you said was talk. You talked about transparency. Um, and, uh, you know, it, no, even if the news is bad, right. this is what it is, and here's the plan that we have for it. So you're saying, so you're, that was your other point that I yeah. wanted to I mean, just look, at, just look at the, you know, I'm, I'm trying hard not to be partisan here, but just look at how um, the U.S. government has dealt with the pandemic. Pandemic. I think if they would have come out very early on and said, this is what we're facing. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. I think it would have made a big difference in how people have responded. I do. You know, on a, that's obviously a macro level. On a micro level, and, you know, it, it's easier, but I think it's, I mean, I think that's a real bad example of how a lack of transparency actually has influenced outcomes, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So, so just for final question for you would be, if you look at, if you, what advice would you have for up and coming young leaders now, especially mm -hmm. women? Um, uh, I think, Be, have some humility mm. and recognize that you don't, even though you may be the smartest person in the universe, maybe you don't know everything and be open to hearing advice and taking advice um, and that doing so, seeking advice is not a sign of weakness. To me, it's a sign of strength to try to, you know, harvest information that you don't know. And then also by doing that, you know, creating relationships that will help you do your job in the long term. Mm. You know, people love to be asked their opinion. <laughs> you know, maybe that's just human nature. So if you go to, a, say, a seasoned leader and say, gee, I'm really struggling with this. Uh, can you help me figure it out? Not only are you likely to get information that will help you, but that person will become your ally. And that person is somebody who will be invested in your success in a way that it wouldn't have happened. So I think that, um, I, I think being a little 
humble about what you know and what you don't know. Because not everybody can know everything. I think that's good. And Nancy, that's thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for sharing your all your wisdom. Well, not all of it. Your teeny bit <laughs> wisdom that we could get out of you in the time. Um, 20 minutes worth of wisdom. It's been, no, it's just so timely. I'm so glad that you were able to come on and that we did this today. So thank you. Well, you're most welcome. I'm glad to do it. 